And I talked about how one of my students had achieved learning a piece that she'd been working on for a while. And I had to stop myself as a teacher and I had to say, okay, just let her be for the week. Like, let her be happy that she has this big accomplishment. And I told her that week, you know what, Madison, just enjoy playing the piano this week. We're not going to do anything new because often we overwhelm students by trying to increase that vocabulary too quickly because we're excited as teachers, like, yes, they finally got it. Let's move on. And sometimes people need to just sort of, you know, spin in a circle for a while to, to feel comfortable where they are. Hi, I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up, Creative Conversations for Today's Piano Teachers. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I will be speaking with Jennifer Eklund. Jennifer is the creator of the very popular Piano Pronto series, which includes method books from primer through advanced, as well as supplemental songbooks in styles ranging from classical to pop. She has also created numerous other resources to help piano teachers, such as theory worksheets and a composition workbook. Her website, www.pianopronto.com, features all of her books as well as books from other living composers. She's also a moderator of the Facebook group, Piano Pronto Publishing Discussion Forum. Out of all the existent method books, I use hers by far the most in my own piano studio, so I'm really excited to welcome Jennifer Eklund. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining today. Hi, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. As I was telling you before we started broadcasting, I'm a big podcast junkie myself. I'm always listening to podcasts while I'm working because I can't listen to music at the same time while I'm writing music. So it's uh, very exciting to be here and congratulations on the new podcast. Thanks so much. So I'd first like to ask about your very wide ranging skill set. Although it seems like your training was in music, being able to do what you do requires so much more than that. Uh, you had to learn, I guess, at some point about graphic design, web site management, the ins and out of running a self-publishing business, marketing. Can you speak to how you went beyond your initial musical training to learn more about these business-related skills? Sure. Um, well, I'm an only child. So in full disclosure, I did two things as a kid. I was always playing school and playing store. So it's kind of ironic that I ended up uh, kind of combining those two loves from my childhood into, into my career path. Um, in terms of learning about publishing, um, really, I am a, a student of the School of Hard Knocks, and I just kind of learned as I went. I always was writing materials for my students, but when it came time to start publishing, I had no clue what I was doing, and it was a very long process of learning about all sorts of things that most of us never even think, even think about when we pick up a book. Things like paperweight and paper type and <laughs> types of binding and, and all of these things that I just had no clue about, you know, and then graphic design and, and things like this. Um, I took some online courses, uh, you know, in Photoshop and InDesign, which are programs that I use daily now. Um, I did some some web development courses. Uh, thankfully, that has been handed off to my brilliant husband who does all of our web design now because that was a little oh. beyond my pay grade. Um, okay. But honestly, I found this aspect of learning all of these different things about business and running a publishing business um, to be one of the more exciting things. I always tell our composers that we represent that the writing part of the process is the most fun you're going to have. <laughs> ah. and, and that is about 5% of the equation. 
95% of it is getting something produced, a tangible wow. object, which luckily for them, I, I do the most, you know, the majority of that. But then the marketing aspect, um, you know, when I started this, like social media didn't exist when I first published back in 06. Um, you know, we had like Yahoo user groups. Uh, that was the thing that was hanging around back then. And so it was very hard to reach audiences, you know, with the advent of Facebook and all of these other platforms, uh, it's been easier for, for piano teachers to kind of like congregate and learn about, um, learn about new things. So that's been a really positive thing. Um, and I, I think that publishing has really changed. Uh, it has changed drastically in the last year even. Um, and I'm hopefully, trying to bury the term self-publishing because I think it has such a stigma attached to it. You mm. sort of think of people selling things out of the trunk of their car on the side of the road. And, and I like to say, you know, that we're, we're a full-scale independent um, publishing house. And I'm really glad that I went this direction because I've been able to, to keep my own voice and my own vision intact because I decided to just, you know, go through the motions and learn all this stuff and do it on my own. Huh. I'm interested. I can ask a follow-up question to that. I mean, you obviously know a lot of other composers who've gone the publishing route and are in your world. Mm -hmm. Would you say that most of them had a similar path to what you described, where their training was purely musical, and then they kind of figured it out along the way as far as the publishing or what you would call the school of hard knocks? No, I would say I would say the more traditional route is talented people who then seek to get under somebody else's umbrella because ah. that that is the easier route. And I don't blame them one bit because I've had my moments throughout this process where, you know, I've had offers from big name publishers and I've thought that that sounds alluring. Um, and I'm glad I didn't go that direction, though, because you, you just you maintain so much more control. So I think what's difficult is going the distance yeah. and figuring out all this stuff because that's where people get stuck. Like I said, it's the writing part of it. You can be as talented as can be, but still fail in the publishing realm if you're not hitting the mark in terms of like being able to do all of these other things. I wish that yeah. I just had 24 hours a day to write, um, but I spend most of my day doing ad mini kind of stuff that uh, maybe isn't always the most fun. But I'm also very proud of, you know, what I've managed to learn over the last, you know, 15 years since I first published. Well, that's very impressive. Well, even though uh, you described the writing as 5%, I would like to hone in a little bit on that 5% for the next few questions. Sure. Um, so I'd love to talk about your thinking in terms of piano pronto. So first I want to talk about mm -hmm. note reading. So a lot mm -hmm. of methods stereotypically go through what you describe as a two-step process. So mnemonic mm -hmm. devices, face, all cowsy grass, or even the interval method. Um, can you talk about why you instead advocate what you describe on your website as a total immersion approach and how that approach informed your sequencing of the concepts in Piano Pronto? Sure. Um, so I first started writing the method when I was living in Stockholm, Sweden. I was, I've told this story many times. Uh, I was working at an international preschool. All of the kids spoke different languages. We sort of had Swedish and English as the languages of the school. And I implemented a, a private piano lesson program there. So I was teaching these kids who we couldn't really communicate. And I just found that sort of dumping them right into the process, pointing to something on the page and then showing them where it was on the piano really got me the furthest. Instead mm -hmm. of trying to use words and rhymes and all sorts of things um, to make sense of things, uh, it really was just easiest to throw them into it. Getting back to that experience in Sweden, um, when I was learning Swedish myself, 
I found that, you know, you start with a very limited vocabulary and you start to use that vocabulary in different everyday situations. It can be as simple as going into the bakery and asking for a cup of coffee. But the response that you get from the person on the other side of the counter is usually different. And there's that mm. situational element. You may know how to ask for a cup of coffee, but somebody may respond back with something different. So how this relates to note reading is what I saw is that you I was most successful when I started kids and it didn't matter the age. I could start them with a very, very small vocabulary of notes, let's say three notes. And then we would just work on different songs mm. using those different notes and those different rhythms in different situations. So again, it's showing them and then, okay, let's flip this around. Let's yeah. see those notes in a different context, in a different yeah. rhythm. And the more and more that I did that, I saw that you could just basically um, incrementally build out their vocabulary. And it's the same way with how I learned Swedish, you know, two weeks down the road, maybe I was able to respond to the person, uh, at the cafe a little bit more, uh, in an involved way because my vocabulary had increased. And so I, I sort of took that, uh, language learning approach, um, to note reading. Yeah, it sounds kind of like a, a quality over quantity sort of thing where you it better to mm -hmm. really know a few words or phrases or notes in this case, as opposed to kind of be able to maneuver yourself into approximating a ton of words or notes. Yes, yeah. yes. And I found too that um, the pacing like in the piano pronto core mm -hmm. method, the, the first method, um, I do do a lot of circular sort of spinning around, you know, yeah. uh, I won't say that it stagnates, but I will say that the pacing is very gradual. And it's mm -hmm. that way for a reason at those very early levels, because again, I want to give kids a lot of experience with these very basic rudiments instead of just like, okay, this, you know, this week, we're going to learn how to play a, a harmonic second. Okay, now next week we're on to the next thing. And then next week we're on to the next thing because kids get very, very overwhelmed. I wrote a blog article a long time ago um, called The Importance of Standing Still. And I talked about how one of my students had achieved learning a piece that she'd been working on for a while. And I had to stop myself as a teacher and I had to say, okay, just let her be for yeah. the week. Like, let her be happy that she has this big accomplishment. And I told her that week, you know what, Madison, just enjoy playing the piano this week. We're not going to do anything new because often we overwhelm students by trying to increase that vocabulary too quickly because we're excited as teachers. Like, yes, they finally got it. Let's move on. And sometimes people need to just sort of, you know, spin in a circle for a while to, to feel comfortable where they are. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely noticed that once I started using your method book more in my studio, that once the kids learn something, they really got a chance to indulge in what they've learned and experiment and say, okay, now I've learned these notes. What can I really do with them? Rather than some other books that are just like, here's one concept. Mm -hmm. Okay, got that. Next one, next one, next one. Um, right. I want to go back to your point about not wanting children to be overwhelmed um, by the note mm -hmm. reading aspect. So um, related yeah. to this note reading, I was interested in even in your earliest primer road trip books, you go right mm -hmm. into reading music from the get-go mm -hmm. and you don't do some of that pre-reading stuff mm -hmm. um, that some other books go, d go down. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what fueled that decision and also how you'd recommend other teachers work through uh, introducing students of theirs to real sheet music from the get-go in a way that won't make the students feel, as you were mentioning, overwhelmed by kind of an information overload. 
Yeah, so the, the road trip series I co-wrote with Chris Skoletsky, um, who's the creator of the Kitty Keys program, which is a wonderful preschool music immersion program with a piano focus. And she and I, we wanted our method for the for the young crowd to be different. Um, we both agreed that through our years of teaching, we found that we often spent more time after a student had, you know, played floating notes on the page that were not given a home on the staff, that we actually spent more time backtracking them out of that thinking oh, because the because okay. the kids would I I can't tell you how many times I had a kid look at me and say, well, why didn't we just see the notes on the lines in the first place? Like, <laughs> why were they why were they just on the blank page? And I get it. I get the methodology behind it. But what Chris and I did is we just, again, like the piano pronto method, we start them with a tiny, tiny, tiny vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And Road Trip is really focused on, on rote learning, note learning, um, or, you know, sort of copycat learning as well. So again, we kids like to feel mature they like to feel like they're doing the big kid stuff so we figure you know what we're going to show them a single staff and they can see directional changes on a staff it, it's not that big of a deal if we put five lines and four spaces behind it we just you show them on the page this is a quarter note i used to use all sorts of cutesy terminology when i first started teaching this is a chocolate note and this is a vanilla note and then and then trying again backtracking kids out of that and telling them okay well i know i said that this was a chocolate note but it's actually a quarter I note can't say i've ever heard of that particular pedagogical yeah. approach <laughs> I yeah that. i you know and, and and that was that was something that my teacher you know uh basically used with me. And so again, it's one of these generational things, you know, kid of the eighties, it just kind of, <laughs> it kind of like passed on. Um, so yeah, again, we just, we want to show them what the music is in a very, very simple way. Um, road trip is all single staff. Um, so it's not as overwhelming as, you know, having a grand staff in right. front of you. And again, the small vocabulary builds it out um, very, very gradually. And we focus on, you know, not a ton of, uh, you know, skipping through the fingers and things that are like technically mm -hmm. difficult. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, now I want to move on to talking about rhythm. Um, earlier mm -hmm. in this interview, you were talking about kind of the immersion approach of mm -hmm. really understanding the notes, even if it's just a few notes. And so I'd be interested in how that applies to rhythm. So one uh, element of your books that I really like is that it includes a lot of songs that are already familiar to the students, mm -hmm. as opposed to only purely pedagogical mm -hmm. pieces. So what mm -hmm. it allows students to do is experience music that might be above their reading level, but not their playing level. Um, right. And so in that vein, you write that for teaching rhythm, you advocate, quote, anything but counting out loud. So I assume you're talking about feeling rhythms being a little more important maybe than understanding all the logistics of mm -hmm. counting. So I'm wondering if you could talk about your approach to introducing new rhythms in piano pronto and if you could give some general advice for teachers using your book who are open to this more experiential approach to rhythm, but mm -hmm. at least eventually do want their students to be able to count metrically. Yeah. Um so I'll tell you where this comes from in the first place. I, um, I was a good piano student, but I could not count and play for the life of me. Mm -hmm. And I used to go home in tears and complain oh, no. to my mom, complain to my mom that certain teachers would not let me play a song without counting out loud at the same time. I just logistically could not make that happen. And I experience the same thing with a lot of my students that it's mm -hmm. difficult to either count out loud or the tapping of the foot. I just like, I couldn't do it. And so my one teacher who I modeled my own teaching after, um, she 
just said, you know what, we're going to play lots of duets. And I tell you, that's what snapped me into mm. place because that collaborative aspect, not only um, from an aural perspective, is it very satisfying to, to hear two parts together, but it is so much easier to start to understand rhythm when you've got somebody playing with good rhythm alongside you. Mm. And so my approach to rhythm for some students, um, the breaking down of beats, half beats, subdivisions, it makes sense to them. And I would say for that type of student, you can go that direction. You'll see in the Piano Pronto books, we still, I still break things down. You know, when mm -hmm. I introduce the dotted rhythm and whatnot, like you still, I show the counting numbers. It's there as an option. I'm all about giving teachers enough room to do what works for them and what works for each individual student because every student is different now for some students showing them a metric breakdown of the measure it just doesn't work i'm sure that you've had students like that 90 percent of my students are in that i know <laughs> i know and those those are the kids who benefit most from you playing alongside them and maybe you count out loud uh, alongside them breaking down the hands separately and you counting out loud aside them. And usually, you know, like most things through repetition, it eventually snaps into place. And so I guess that is my not so uh, in-depth approach to rhythm, but it is, it's really a case by case basis that you have to, that you have to handle. I would say, I would say with most kids, uh, rhythm is probably the most difficult aspect. It's more difficult um, than technical stuff because technical stuff usually right. works itself out um, over time. Um, rhythm, if you start playing those duets with them early on, and I write a lot of syncopation into my duets because it's sort of in a sneaky way gets them feeling the subdivision of the beat without them knowing that they're mm -hmm. doing that. So right. um, yeah. Yeah, but I do also think that um, incorporating pieces that they're already familiar with is a helpful yes. way of doing it too. Like I can't say how much easier it was to teach dotted quarters using your book, which introduces them with London Bridge, mm -hmm. than in some other books where it's nothing they've ever. Heard. So at least as a crutch, if they can at some point, right? You already know London Bridge is falling right. down. Okay, let's look at how that's notated right. like this. Right, that was very helpful with my students. Yeah, and a, and a great example of this is in the Piano Pronto Prelude book, um, the Ode to Joy um, melody, I believe has straight quarters and half notes. Mm -hmm. And the students who, of course, recognize that piece, um, they start to put in a dotted rhythm at the end of that, of each phrase. I have yes. had that happen. And, yeah. Yes, <laughs> and I and I believe it's the same thing with Jingle Bells. I think I write it as a straight rhythm, but of course kids know that tune. And mm -hmm. so that's just a great sort of like touchstone point with students that you can say, ah, you know what, you just did something really advanced. Let me show you what you did. And you can jot in that rhythm and say, okay, the way that you just played it actually looks like this on the page. And so, yes, the use of familiar tunes really helps because, again, they build out that situational experience by you showing them what it looks like on the page and them knowing what it's supposed mm -hmm. to sound like so they can make that eye-ear connection. Right. I just had a similar experience to what you described, not with your book, but I was using a beginner mm -hmm. arrangement of Linus and Lucy with a student, mm -hmm. and it was written as da-da-da-da-da-da-da. 
Da, da, oh, da. Uh-huh. So they didn't yeah. write in the syncopation, but of course the student knew yes. it by ear. So then they played it with the syncopation. So you have to know as a teacher, do you let that go or should we encourage you? Know, uh, no, you don't yeah. let it go because okay. uh, that is that is one of my quibbles always with like easy arrangements of things mm. is that um, publishers always think that kids can't handle anything. Right. I, I don't know how this happened along the line that we decided somewhere that dotted rhythms are too scary and you shouldn't be playing them until you're in a level two book. Um, Frankly, I think it's ridiculous. These are rhythms that we live with all the time. Um, I always introduce, uh, you know, syncopation early because this is like, you know, it's the standard pop rhythms that they're listening to. Right. Uh, I I won't say when they're listening to the radio because who listens to the radio, Um, but, you know, just the music that they're listening to in their everyday lives, they know these rhythms. So you can easily make that eye ear connection Mm -hmm. and, and sort of kill two birds with one stone. Right. Yeah, so I'd like to use this idea of thinking about what we Mm -hmm. might think of as difficult versus what's actually difficult to pivot Mm -hmm. to talking a little bit about you kind of as a composer. Um, So Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in that I compose as well. And um, when I write for students and I test it out on students, as I know you did with your Piano Pronto Mm -hmm. books, I was always stunned by many things that I thought would be really challenging were effortless and then vice versa. There were many things that caused challenges in ways that I didn't anticipate at all. So I'm wondering if you could talk about your experiences when you were testing out early versions of Piano Pronto on students in terms of how you've learned to make pieces more idiomatic. Um, probably the exact same experience that you've had. Um, they get hung up on things that you'd never expect them to get hung up on and then they breeze through things that, that should be really hard. Um, I think most students are really similar in what they get hung up on. And I think, I think over the years, I I taught for 20 years before I retired from teaching Mm -hmm. uh, to run the publishing business. And I think um, sort of the last 10 years of that, I was really like testing materials on students and whatnot. And I think you just eventually get a sense for what little hands can do and what they can handle. You, of course, are always going to have the oddball student who can just, you know, do anything that you throw at them. Um, but most students sort of tend to fall into the other category of, you know, having the same, having the same challenges. And so I think then once you've got sort of that formula in your head of what works and what doesn't work, it's, it's pretty, it gets easier, um, to write beyond that. I will say it is uh, the most difficult to write for beginners and late beginners. It is very difficult to write interesting music. Um, mm. One of the ways that I that I found around that is, of course, you know, using more interesting rhythm. Um, because at least if you're if you're in the realm of sort of being stuck around five fingerish stuff with you know limited position shifts and whatnot, um, you can still make it interesting by making the rhythm more interesting. And that is exciting to kids because if they've got something that they feel is kind of grooving, um, mm. they're more excited about about it than you know more static stuff. The other thing, uh, as a writer, I never really cared for like single line pieces, you know, that have maybe a split melody between the two hands. Um, What I found through testing Piano Pronto is that like when they get to Brother John in that first book and it's suddenly they've got They love it. My students explode at that moment when we introduce it. Suddenly when they, (laughs) yes, when they have the glorious sound of three notes happening at the same time, it is like the heavens open up for them and it's like a whole new world. And so I have always been in favor of even, you know, very easy music. I 
if it isn't supported by a teacher duet, like we got to make it interesting somehow. Mm -hmm. So I always try and write in nice open harmonies, mm -hmm. you know, open six in the bass with, you know, something harmonic over the top. So they at least get, you know, a nice, um, a nice sound for their ears. And then if you can incorporate some, some sort of groovy uh, rhythms in there, that, that really is the trick, but it is, it is hard to write for beginners and there's only so much you can do with the, <laughs> with five notes and, you know, a few other little tricks. Right. But that's interesting, as you say, that in the situations where you only have five notes to play with, mm -hmm. that maybe you can add some challenges in terms of rhythm or in terms of mm -hmm. adding some open harmonies. Uh, yeah. One quick anecdote about you were talking about Brother John. I have one student of mine who um, his mom is a music teacher and she mm -hmm. wanted him to play piano forever. And she actually emailed me and said when she first heard him play exactly the one you described, Brother mm -hmm. John, and he first got the moment where he played both hands together, she actually mm -hmm. got a little teary uh, just because it sounded so good. Yeah. And, so. and you know what, that is a, and that's a motivation wave that you can ride for a long, long, mm -hmm. long time. You know, another, um, another thing as a writer that I've found has been very successful. I have a few uh, songbooks that are actually multi-level songbooks. Um, one in particular, my holiday classics book uh, is extremely popular and and then I wrote a, a follow-up book to it um, for regular non-Christmas music. It's called Level Up. And I found that with my students, I was always trying to accommodate for different levels. And so I would often write multiple versions of the same piece. And I would get very frustrated with like holiday books that were meant to be alongside method books because, you know, you have a student who starts in September and can hardly do anything by November when it's time to start playing holiday music. And then you get stuck into just playing, you know, Jolly Old St. Nicholas and Jingle Bells for that holiday season because they're not far enough in, in their lesson book mm. to you know, to go any further. And I always found that very frustrating. So in these multi-level books, I have three versions of each song. So I've got a bass version and then a second version that's a little bit more complicated. And then a third version that again, maybe, you know, ups the ante in terms of the rhythm and whatnot. What I found, the teachers have found this uh, over and over as well, is that students are always so curious about like, well, what's harder about the next version? Like, could we take a look at that? Let's, mm -hmm. uh, let's see it. And it's really this like scaffolding approach. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a deconstructed way of how you want students to do section work in their own music, but it's sort of done for you. They learn that very easy version then they can move on to the second mm -hmm. version and then they can see what's in the third version. And I used to find that around holiday times, like my students, they would excel and they would learn music that was way above what they were, um, what they were playing in their method book, not only because the tunes were familiar, but they really liked sort of that gamification of mm -hmm. the books that they could take a sneak peek at, you know, like what's coming up, what actually makes this harder. Um, so the, the name of that other book is called level up and uh, it's been quite successful. And I think it's a really, it's, you know, it's a good way, it's a good way to show teachers too how to sort of break a more complicated piece down into uh, lower stages. Well, that's good. I actually, yeah. I'm ashamed to say I have not explored that resource as much. I'm definitely oh. going to look at that oh, after okay. this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that sounds great. Uh, one more question on the compositional front. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested by how successfully you dabble in such a wide variety of styles. I mean, you do classical, jazz, pop, mm -hmm. I mean, everything under the mm -hmm. sun. So I, mm -hmm. I'm always interested in composers who write this way. I mean, there are some composers like Beethoven, Stephen Sondheim, where mm -hmm. no matter what 
they're writing in, as wide-ranging as it is, you can always instantly tell that it's them, and they kind of have their mm-hmm. own tag on it. And then there are composers, like in grad school, I learned a lot about the very modernist composer Milton Babbitt, who would write yeah. these really atonal pieces, but then write musical theater pieces, and your reaction, you just could not believe the same person wrote both. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the opposite of what I was describing with Beethoven and Sondheim. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, in your sense, when you write these pieces in such a drastic range of styles, do you mm-hmm. see any kind of through line that connects everything you write? Or do you find it more fun to just wear as many hats as possible and each piece is its own distinct entity? Well, I, I recently uh, used a fashion design analogy to describe sort of me and what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you have like editorial designers who design for magazine covers and mm-hmm. it's very avant-garde and it's, you know, what I might describe as a little weird. And then there's ready to wear designers who design stuff that's practical for everyday use and for everyday people. And I would say I'm very much a ready to wear, ready to play um, Mm -hmm. uh, writer. And, and honestly, like I, I never really had any interest in composing. Um, I always, Oh, really? No, I'm so surprised to hear that. No, I am. I, I, and I still to this day consider myself an arranger first and foremost, because I do feel like I have a very special eye and feel for arranging music um, that feels really good in the hands. That is my number one priority as a writer is that things just sort of fall into your fingers. And I'm a good pianist. I was successful in college as a performer, but I am not gonna be playing rock three at Carnegie Hall. I, I am, you know, I've got good chops and I, I have a very uh, wide breadth of experience in terms of genres. I came up learning a lot of jazz and standards and, mm-hmm. and then in college I played in jazz improv groups and I never was much of a great jazz soloist, but I sure learned a heck of a lot playing in big bands and whatnot. I have a great love for, for jazz and jazz harmonies and, and that's where a lot of my sensibility uh, comes from. I only started composing because I, you know, I wrote a few things and then they were really popular with the teachers, like end game. And I was like, well, this is kind of goofy. I'm not really sure I, I want to write my own things because I don't like the blank page. I would much rather put my own spin on, on something great that's already been written. And that's mm. where my, so I, where I my great love is. Oh, no, it's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> I guess your approach to composition was kind of like what you were describing as your approach to marketing and publishing and that you kind of figured it out as you went along. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I, I would say, um, I would say even over just the last, you know, three or four years, like my writing style has, it's constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that I'm very much in my, in my sus chord era right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I've been working for musicnotes.com for a few years now. Um, it is my dream job, really what I always wanted to do. Uh, yeah, I always wanted to write method books, but I always just wanted to be a pop music arranger. That was like my dream job. If I could get paid to do that, man, I thought I made it. So, you know, 20 years later, I'm, I'm finally there. And I love that they let me do whatever I want. I can arrange whatever I want. But I learned so much from looking at how other writers have put songs together. It helps me in my own writing. Um, but I just find that my writing style is, you know, constantly evolving just from looking at music and arranging music um, all the time. So, Great. Well, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. Finally, um, before, as we wrap up, I'm wondering if you could give our listeners a sense of just big picture what you're up to now and how people can follow you and your work if they are not already doing so. 
Sure. Well, I'm probably the most accessible person on the planet. You know, it's funny when customers actually like, you know, call the phone number on the website and they're like, wow, is this actually Jennifer? <laughs> like, you know, yes, I actually, I actually answer my phone. Um, so 2021, we're here. Um, we Number one priority right now, we have a wonderful new website coming out. Uh, I'm not going to put a date on it because uh, my brilliant husband is still in development. We're hoping sometime in the first quarter, he basically has redesigned everything from from the, you know, from the very foundation. Um, we've come from scratch. Uh, we've been listening to the customers over the last five years. We know what you guys want, what you need. And we really are at the forefront of like, you know, suiting the needs of teachers now in this crazy era where all of a sudden everything is virtual. Um, I can say that, you know, even with all the craziness last year, um, you know, we were ready for it. We have been one of the platforms that, you know, we've been digital for a long time. We have those options available to teachers and, and uh, we really built the website experience out to be like being in a brick and mortar store. Um, here in California, we've got like no music stores left and it's been that way for a very, very long time. So when we started, you know, building even the website that we're on right now, we wanted the experience to be like you were in the music store and you could flip through everything and you have the ad added benefit of being able to listen to the music and, and watch videos of, you know, either myself or the composers that we represent, um, you know, playing their pieces and so, we have the new website coming this year. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to, it's a thousand times better than what we're on right now. Uh, even as good as that is. And other than the website, we're going to keep uh, plugging along. We have, uh, I think about 28 composers that we represent. Uh, they're all fabulous people. And, you know, we keep releasing new music of theirs. And uh, on my front, um, I think that I'm going to put out a new Christmas book this year. So I've got, I've got like an August deadline on that. Um, and it's going to be, as I mentioned, sort of in my new writing style. Um, With the sus chords. Yes, I'm, okay. in my, I'm in my sus chord era. I, I do a lot of like praise and worship music arranging mm -hmm. now. And so that stuff is just, you know, sus chord heaven all over the place. So um, probably a new Christmas book for me. And then other than that, um, my sister website is called FM, as in FM radio, fmsheetmusic.com. And that's where all of my pop music catalog lives. Um, so I do daily arranging. That catalog is about eight, 1,850 pieces right now, hoping to be about 2,200 by the end of the year. Oh. Yeah. And those are, that's all levels. I usually write multiple versions of pieces. I'm doing everything from music that just came out last week to, you know, uh, sort of my heart songs and stuff from eighties and nineties and, and, uh, and everything in between. So I, I spend the majority of my time right now sort of um, building out my pop catalog because like I said, you know, you can only do so much of your own composing with five notes. So arranging is really, you know, what keeps me up and running every day. So I think that's, uh, that's, that's pretty much our roadmap for, for 2021. Great. Well, I will look forward to the new website and to the yeah. holiday book. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, Jennifer, it was so great speaking with you. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time.